The chief town of this region is Tarma, about 200 miles inland, altitude 9,800 feet, population 8,000. We stayed for some days here, greatly enjoying its splendid climate, a paradise for consumptive patients. Excellent wheat and barley are grown here. This is also the home of the potato, Papa they're still called, being the old Inca name. Moreover, they have some varieties better than any of ours, one of which I hope to introduce to Scotland. Tuesday the 2nd of July. It is the morning before we start the descent into the jungle, and as Ian and I sit in the garden of the hacienda, we also start to think about our planned stay with the Ashen Inca tribes. It always felt to me that this was the part of Arthur's story that was not told and needed to be. It was their land that Arthur was exploring and their land that would ultimately be colonised for coffee production. What was their side of the story? Before our trip, I had made contact with an anthropologist, Eleanor Mihas, who had been working with the Ashaninka Perene people in the Chanchamaya region and documenting their language for over 10 years. Today, only 300 fluent speakers remain. Eleanor had put me in touch with Gregorio, who could make local introductions for us to meet people in the villages, and Lucho's long-standing relationships with the Ashaninka people also gave us a way in. But it was with some trepidation that we looked forward to this encounter. OK, so we've, uh, we're sitting in the garden of the Hacienda Santa Maria in Tama, which is a really lovely, peaceful place. And we've got the babbling brook in the background and really beautiful gardens here. And um, I think this was very much Arthur's experience of being in Tama as well. Um, is that what you yes, found? Yes, uh, I think so. Well, the thing with Arthur, un unlike with me, I was, a, I was a really bad gardener, but I was a, I was a parks gardener, but I'm used to plant some of the things that we can see here around the schools in um, Limehouse and Poplar back in the 1970s. Arthur's way of reading the country was, was totally botanical because of his training. He, he started out as a self-taught gardener up in Aberdeen, um, rather in the style that Lucio presents himself as somebody who's, who's self-invented. Arthur left school at 12 and commenced his education, as he puts it, and he learnt all about plants and how to use them best and therefore came to the attention of a local landlord and was sent out to Ceylon where he learnt even more about soil and planting, especially coffee and tea. So when he was travelling, as we've done, across the country, his register of things is by the plants. And if there was a beautiful series of gardens, then he ascribed virtue to the people responsible as well. So he had a kind of moral or ethical sense of gardening and planting. And I think when he came here, he really felt at home, in a sense, that this was somewhere he he recommended that people could come and live. Sort of people with breathing difficulties in Britain and consumptives and lung disease. This is what he thought was a sort of perfect climate. And he's imagining this garden as it is now, with in front of us a beautiful series of irises, wide open, um, and red geraniums in pots all along the cacti and a border of eucalyptus trees that have been ported because the wood was usable in ways that Spaniards found that, that other local woods were not. And the hills 
the bare hills beyond on the other side. So it's almost a perfect place to just meditate on the journey. You know, we, we've, we've done so much so quickly. It's almost overwhelming. And because of the altitude sickness, everything is a bit weird. We've, we've been staggering around slightly drunk. The brain is not quite in gear. You, you know, there's incipient headaches at the edge of things. And then we had a whole evening of Lucho telling us stories of the jungle, horror stories of wounds and diseases and fish doing nasty things. You're feeling a bit nervous about the jungle now. Um, no, I think we're probably apprehensive. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't go into it lightly. And also, that's the, the physical nature of the jungle, but um, on the other side of it, there's the, the nature of the people there who, who live there and, and how they're negotiating with the contemporary world and how we're presented as coming to them as Lucio's trying to say we're not just tourists who want to take a snapshot of them doing slightly faked up rituals but we we're on some kind of quest but it's very hard for him to say what it is maybe it's hard for us to know what it is I don't know what your your own major impulse into into searching was and what you wanted to get back from the encounter that Lucia's yeah. now planning. I know. I mean, it's it's hard to know what the encounter will be like. I suppose I always wanted to sort of know what the what the other side of Arthur's story was from the Ashalinka point of view, which is um, you know what did they make of what did they make of but him? No way we can get that. I don't think there's any way we can ever get their side of the story because their story, their narrative history is so completely and absolutely different. That they're, they're living in a different world in which this was a small intrusion. Some maybe registered at the time, maybe didn't. Um, and now I don't think would, would have any impact on them. And they'd be very... They, no. could, they couldn't really understand no. what was happening because they, they knew people who came there blatantly to exploit them and, and tried to make them do things. And Arthur, when he turned up, didn't have this kind of agenda. And he, he was curious about them and managed to persuade them to undertake this expedition to the Falls at Ipoki. Yeah. But then everything goes wrong. Yeah. They, they, he falls out with them yeah. in some way. And they, you know, he doesn't understand how they behave and what's required. And um, equally, I just think they got pretty fed up with them because they get bored, you know, as... As Lucho is telling us, you have to negotiate with humour, and you have to, you have to uh, um, take on the drinks that they want you to drink and, and listen to the songs and all that stuff. And I don't think Arthur was doing no. that. I mean, I suppose. I mean, I, know, I realise that specifically, no one is going to remember. But I suppose it's more like, uh, say, with Father Salah, um, you find out more which about the character, which gives it some colour so even though we can't I'd like to yeah yeah so so even though we can't specifically say does anybody remember the specific incident but we could we can find out um more about who Kinchokri was or or later on um you know what were people's memories but of the of the colony you know, or, or just or just about for, what try can for, we? because or maybe we can't what can we, what what if someone from Peru came round to us now and tried to talk about an incident at the period of Queen Victoria. You know, we, we would be completely hopeless to answer it. We couldn't. Mm. Some, someone from Peru had come to Hackney and had 
been involved with a, an incident I'm planting in a cemetery or whatever in 1891, well, what could we say? Nothing. I mean, because I've taken an interest in, in London history and so on, I could kind of vaguely cover the ground, but you, you, you just couldn't answer any personal thing. With them, it's, it's, it's very different because I think their sense of time and history is so much larger. It's, kind of, it's a kind of mythical, natural history involving dream and I think when, when Lucho was talking about having taken this hallucinogenic substance and, and um, the mind control the, the censoring aspects of his brain stepped aside and uh, the hard drive of his com mental computer opened up in such a way that mythic animals appeared and his ancestors challenged him and dealt with him that was, that was very interesting and that's a different way of thinking and it's a different way of thinking and behaving and I, I don't think unless we're going to enter into their lives for a period of time as Lucho has done over many years engagement with them exchanges of gifts drinking sessions um, drug sessions vomiting getting ill all the, all the adventures the shining path all that stuff that happened makes a kind of personal connection and history that, that you could then begin to get behind but to come in just for a couple of days, I mean, um, we've got to be very, very sharp to, to, I think, to get any kind of register. Whereas with Father Salah, you can, because he comes from a literate culture, and the priests were, were big time on mapping and on um, written records and histories. History is very important politically, and that, that where they would um, go into the libraries in Madrid as well as in Lima, and at the convent that we visited. But um, with, I think we were just stepping into the unknown, big mm. time, after mm. tomorrow. I mean, I think... Um, I mean, it, yeah, no, it's hard to say whether we'll actually get anything out of it at all. Maybe maybe, maybe, oh, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe we won't. Uh, but maybe it's kind of thinking about it like at a, a bit of a... a bit of a tangent, maybe. Just... Um, well, you well, know, to try if they, I, you know, you know, like what you know, what their mythology uh, or cosmology is of their understanding of of their ancestors might give us a a clue in um, some I, well, way. I think, I think I can only think of it from the perspective of tracing Arthur as as my ancestor, and thinking about tracing Arthur as my ancestor in somewhat their style. Having, having been through the process and seen the place, I might think about his story in a different way, that's all. I, I don't think I can ever get, I wouldn't assume that I could get into the, the mindset no. they have or even recover historical documentation about so-called King Chokri and his moment because I think that's somewhere else. But our, our own senses of, of, of what Arthur's journey were will change for sure. I mean, it already has. And I think that's, that's the thing I'm looking for. I'm more myself trying to identify him and the way he behaved as to the way we've behaved and the, and the attempts to, to write and describe landscape as, and to understand and appreciate how he did it, the things I think he did very well and the things that are dubious, and to, to keep that as a lesson for us as you know, ethical descendants of Arthur, that we're, we're, we've got a tradition behind us that should be honoured in a way that doesn't necessarily happen in European culture.
I mean, the old folk are often just a nuisance, and we listen, half listen to their stories, but we don't put it into a framework. But that framework was always there, especially on the Welsh side of the family, which is the closest thing I can get to an indigenous group, because their, their culture was largely singing and um, storytelling and mythologizing, and the same myths passed on, and it passed generally through the women, grand grandmothers and great aunts, and those, my mother and those people told these stories over and over and over, and that reinforced it. And there wasn't any, any written tradition, and there wasn't any pictorial tradition either with the Welsh. It was, a, it was a singing. The singing thing was communal, and it brought them together, and then the storytelling. And I think you can relate that to, to how these people behave. Yeah. I remember Grandpa had, used to have some, some good stories about being a... GP, and uh, you know, there was one about, a, I don't know, uh, there was like a train, a coffin on a train or something that he used to tell. Well, that Can was, you remember that, that one? His, that was the... I don't know whether that was his father, but I think ah. it might have been, because um, the link between Arthur, my great-grandfather, and Henry, my father, was his father, Henry, who was Arthur's son, who's left out of the story a bit, but he was the one who came from Scotland to Wales. Uh, but still retained the Scottish identity completely in a way that my father did. And he was a Scotsman who, had, who was, might as well have gone to Ceylon, but he came to industrial South Wales, completely strange place. And, and as, a, as a doctor, had a certain kind of status and a, and a, and a house and a, a carriage that he drove around in. And um, he got all his stuff sent down by train or by ship from Scotland, he's still, he's still, you get, there are packing cases there of, of uh, whiskey or whatever that was shipped down from Scotland and then when he died, I think, if I heard the stories, he was put in his coffin in my stag and he went on train back up to Aberdeen to be buried and so did um, the sis sister, my father's sister, Sheila, who's not been kind of a part of the story. Now, if she, if it's a Welsh thing, you'd have heard the stories of what happened to her and why she died as a teenager, whatever. And I only discovered it in finding a bunch of old photographs of Arthur. There was a picture of a grave in Scotland, in Aberdeen, and um, the family around it. So there's, there are these missing stories that within other cultures wouldn't be missing. My father had the same take as Arthur, in that he liked to and like Lucio, to, to reprise these stories of picaresque adventures in living in Wales and the you know, amazing things, having to go down to coal mines after accidents and amputate people's legs and his first call out to some remote um, terraced cottage right up by the top end of the town where there's blood running down the staircase and there's no proper lighting and someone's committed suicide and no, you know, this is a very young doctor, all those kind of things, when his plan in life had been to go into tropical medicine. He, he got the gold medal in tropical medicine in Aberdeen and he was going off to West Africa because he wanted to be part of that tradition the same way as Arthur, the Scottish gene that's there to be at home everywhere except in Scotland and to, to get out there into the world. And that never happened because his father got ill and went back in the coffin to Scotland and he, he carried on in Wales, took over the, took over the practice. Um, but when he got his holidays in September every year, he, he always went somewhere and they went, they went back to Peru, in fact, to begin what we're doing now, but not such quite a harsh way. And he went to Ceylon and found, found the estate. So he 
He wanted to recapture that story. The same way we're talking about the ancestor thing, he wanted to recover that part of the story alongside his ordinary life in Wales. Working in a kind of community that was not unlike La Arroya in that essentially the, the diseases he was dealing with, like silicosis, were lung diseases that the miners suffered. The miners were, were generally had a life expectancy of about 60. It was, they were really hard and and he was part of that community. And, you know, he could have been a, a doctor in La Araya, which was more extreme, but it's, it's basically the same pattern. And you were saying that you remembered going and playing out on the... Yeah. On the slag heaps well, or on oh, the... Yes, no, yeah. When I was... I mean, much... We had a, a much freer sense of playing around than, than you could get now, but um, the places, the adventure playgrounds for us were the, were the old industrial slag heap, you know, climbing about on slag heaps, making log cabins out of the, the wood that had been cut as pit props, um, playing on old trains that were not there anymore, going into tunnels which you hoped the trains that were not going to come through anymore. Um, yeah, it was quite quite an adventurous post-industrial landscape. Children don't have that sort of freedom <laughs> anymore. No, uh, no, well, it's more, no, Well, maybe it was dangerous at the time, but it, it was wasn't, okay. Wasn't, or, well, it was kind of yeah. dangerous yeah. In, a, in, a, in a modest way, but I mean, what, there were different kinds of dangers and there, and there wasn't the kind of level of fear that you'd have now, especially for an urban urban child going out. And so you gradually mapped mapped a landscape. And what was interesting was that the American photographer, Robert Frank, who was a friend and associate of the Beat Generation and who I got, got to know in, through my interest in Jack Kerouac and so on, I never realized that he actually came to my stake in 1953 when I was 10 years old. He lived with a mining family um, I don't even know that my father may well have come across him because he would have known some of the same people. And there are photographs in, in Frank's book which are of these places I used to play. And you could see these, these scrappy kids running about on these overgrown slag heaps at the top end of the valley. And you know, I thought, well, that's amazing. I could have actually been there yeah, when this man came there. through. And then, strangely enough, his... his current project was in the east end of London so he kind of has a book that combines my steg and the, and the miners with um, east end of London uh, uh, Does that seem like um, a long time ago to you now or like, like, like another life or, or when you're looking back to, to being that age or? Uh, Yeah it's, it's, I do, it does seem comple- obviously a completely different way of life because uh, 1940s, 50s were, were really strange kind of black and white movie time Everything was was quite grey and very restricted, and you know, food rationing and all those things. But uh, I say we, the, the the memories of the, the gradually discovering and exploring this landscape, and pushing further and further out, and combining it with the stories I got. Like my, I went with my father when he was going to visit an old hermit who lived on on a farm and was a, in a, with a corrugated tin shack over the top. And he lived in a kind of hole in the ground, and nobody paid much attention to this. You could do it, and we went. I can remember now walking across the field to to sort of see him. That he was, he was okay. Someone would drop in once in a while, and you know, you had the place that's a combination of a, of a country, a small country village with with the old farms around it, and then this industrial incursion that came over the top of it, and which was beginning to collapse by the time I left. And most of the employment in the steel company of Wales or in the six coal mines was was now 
gone or threatened. So the whole thing changed. But it's, it, the thing is, and you, you will discover this eventually, <laughs> is that when you get older, those um, scenes and those memories are much sharper than the middle ground. Really? Yeah, and mm. when my mother began to lose her marbles at the end or be, you know, become uh, sort of al- Alzheimer's or whatever it was, mm. she still had perfect recall and would tell stories of stuff she'd done as a young girl. That was really vivid. Uh, and she could then, gradually, she forgot that she'd been married and all that thing disappeared. Mm. And initially she thought I was my father and then, then I kind of disappeared, everything disappeared except those early memories. So I think the brain is wired in such a way that you remember that part most yeah, vividly. It's like the, kind of the deepest part that, that formed you is, is more, more set. But do you feel this like... This is why oh, it surprises, yeah. uh, surprises when Anna and I are talking to Will or to you. Will often does it. He sort of describes some incident in childhood very, very vividly as being very important to them and it just didn't, whatever it was, didn't register at all or what we'd done or we'd, we'd been so engrossed with our own lives and doings we never noticed this second life was going on out there. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, you have much stronger memories of your childhood and it was maybe just a, an ordinary day for everybody else. Um, but then Arthur, the thing with Arthur and his accounts... His family don't seem to appear in them at all. No. And, all. and all the other ones as well. Even this story of his life doesn't seem to include his well, wife his and his whole a number of children. And yeah. the, when did this happen? I mean, that's just not... You know, it doesn't... It doesn't I, I kind of guess, but there's no evidence for it, that, that he, after he'd been in Ceylon the first time and, and made his money and at 40 came back to Scotland, then I think he... He met whoever it was and got married in Scotland and, and the children seemed to be born and grown up in Scotland. But then they were off, you know, because they, they register as my father. My grandfather was, was got a school prize book from Tasmania, from Hobart. Form prize from Hobart, which I've got. And so, when, you know, I don't know. I don't know how it lived, worked. Live in the Australia, yeah. Somebody in Australia. Yeah. So, but th- there's no, we've no knowledge of that at all. All we've got is this strange account of this late journey that he makes through Peru, which was not a country he knew anything about. You know, he knew Ceylon and he knew India, he knew Australia very well and went backwards and forwards. And then suddenly he's in this place as a one-off and um, he brings the experience of planting and, and the natural world and the rest he has to make up as he goes along. And he's, he's just near here. He, they, they go into the hut of, of a Highlander up on the Altiplano. And he says he put all his prejudices aside because he was so impressed that these people who had virtually nothing decide, insisted on giving him you know, a meal. And while they're talking, because he's shown he's interested in the flowers around, the young girl from the family goes out and gathers up a kind of big bunch of flowers and presents it. Okay. okay. I said one more question, which was um, uh, yeah, whether you think that you feel the same way as you did when you were ten. Like I kind of think oh. Oh, I kind of think that about myself. Like essentially, yeah. I'm sort of the same person, mm-hmm. um, uh, but somehow I seem to have ended up being 47. Which, <laughs> but I wondered if there's like an age where you kind of feel essentially yourself, or how you experience that 
I don't know. I think I think you've got all all those various lives within you. Sort of early the very well. If you were like James Joyce writing Portrait of the Artist, a young man starts off in a kind of baby language description of the close up of a moo cow and all those things, and evolves into the way a child registers and then into the kind of torments of adolescence and the, the strange pretensions of adolescence and then finishes up leaving, going into a state of exile and travel. And I think that's kind of the journey that, that initially your, your impressions are all sensory. You've got very smells and, and tastes and looks and colours and things that, that you don't really understand. The world's very vivid. And then you you go through all the, the various stages and, and traumas, and each of these is part of the register of who you are, but I don't think you really ever find out who you are, maybe until you're not you anymore and you're just part of all this. You just, you just go back into your, into your memories of all of these places you've been to. So each, each of these journeys is, is very important. But this one more more than most because it's so intense. We're cramming so much into such a short time, and we're also grabbing at memories of Arthur, who's written this account. But the, obviously, the account is not 100% accurate. It's it's his own memory and shaping of experience. Mm-hmm. 